Good evening. Good evening. I'm Sandra Peart, Dean of the Jepson School of Leadership Studies, and on behalf of the Jepson School and the Center for Civic Engagement, it's my pleasure to welcome you to this evening's discussion of the documentary, How the Monuments Came Down. It's also my pleasure to briefly introduce you to tonight's panelists, including filmmakers Hannah Ayers and Lance Warren, Executive Director of the Jamestown Yorktown Foundation, Christy S. Coleman. <laughs> Leadership Studies Professor and Historian, Julian Hayter. <laughs> University of Richmond Visiting Lecturer and Public Historian, Laurenette Lee. and Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist and former Jepson School leader-in-residence, Michael Paul Williams. These panelists, all of whom worked on or appeared in the film, share a connection to the Jepson School and the university. Please join me in welcoming them once again. The idea for hosting this tonight's event was floated months ago when the Jepson School and the Bonner Center for Civic Engagement reached out independently to the filmmakers within days of each other with the request to bring this film to the campus. Tonight, that idea comes to fruition. We look forward to a discussion centering on history, Richmond's history as the capital of the Confederacy, the monument's history as part of the lost cause narrative, and our own institutional history. We will also discuss our collective future. I'd like to take a moment to recognize and welcome University President Kevin uh, Halleck, who's here this evening. I Thank you. I'd also like to thank Alumni Relations for its support in making possible tonight's live stream. We have a large group uh, who are watching us via live stream. Welcome to all of you. And I'd like to thank as well University Chaplain Craig Coker for moderating tonight's discussion. We're grateful as well to Madison Fitzgerald, a class of 2023 leadership studies and journalism major and communications assistant for equity and community. And Ben Queen, also a class of 2023 leadership studies major for facilitating tonight's Q&A with the selection of questions submitted upon registration. If you'd like to ask the panelists any additional questions, please follow the QR code on your program just hover on the code with your phone's camera and it will direct you to a form where you can submit your questions. We invite you to continue the conversation after this event in booth lobby at a reception immediately following the presentation. We encourage anyone interested in learning more about the city of Richmond or engaging with the city of Richmond to connect with the Bonner Center. Thank you and now I'll turn it over to Craig. Uh, Dean Peart, thank you. Uh, and thanks to all of you. 
uh, for joining us. Uh, thanks to all of you who are joining us uh, virtually. Uh, we're really so happy to have you. Uh, and uh, my role as the moderator is uh, simply to try to uh, evoke the wisdom and experience that's on the stage. Uh, we have extraordinary uh, people here who have great depth uh, of thought, wisdom about uh, Richmond, Virginia, the monuments, uh, the story that we are all living as part of this community. Um, uh, and hopefully uh, we can um, together explore those themes more closely. So we'll launch right in, and uh, first I want to start with uh, Hannah and Lance. Um, uh, first, uh, thank you for this extraordinary work. Uh, we're, we're all very grateful uh, for the creativity and the effort uh, to help us think more deeply uh, about the community uh, that we live in uh, and our shared past and future. Uh, could you share with us, uh, why did you decide uh, to make this film, or, or perhaps, uh, better put, why did you feel it to be necessary? Thank you, Craig. I, I appreciate that question. And, and thank you indeed for everyone who came out tonight and everyone who's watching us. It's always truly special to have an opportunity to do something here at the University of Richmond. In the summer of 2020, we were watching, as everybody was watching, the uprisings, the unprecedented response to everything that was grabbing people's attention, to realities that had been real for a very long time that suddenly a lot more people were caring about. And they were calling this a moment, but it was a moment, of course, with very deep roots. We were living three blocks from Monument Avenue, uh, which of course was an epicenter for, for the protest because uh, of its being lined with monuments that were celebrations of white supremacy. And so naturally in this quote unquote moment with, uh, with, with people caring deeply, it was a place where a lot of that was taking root. And we understood that something that, that was very true in Richmond and in so many places with, with problematic uh, public monuments, we understood that the full story of these monuments has never been the dominant narrative, right? They've only reflected one type of narrative, one type of, of, of reality in people's minds. They have pretty poorly reflected the many people who resisted them and resisted all sorts of forms of white supremacy here in Richmond for decades and generations. And we were struck that in this moment when far more people than usual were willing to say that yes, indeed, black lives and black history matters, maybe if they were only willing to say that for a minute, maybe if they were only willing to say it on a yard sign, they were saying it. And we thought, well, maybe, maybe then in this moment, there's an opportunity to encourage people to look at that longer, deeper history, to look at that full story that has never been the dominant narrative. And as people who care deeply about these questions have been making films at this intersection for a decade at that point, we also asked ourselves, what is the best way that we can contribute to this moment? What is the best way that we can get involved and what can we offer? And, and the area where we have the most ability or talent or connections or whatever is documentary filmmaking. And so we set about to do something that would try to meet that moment. We've had the opportunity to tour past films around the country and uh, to have a lot of screenings and, and public events. And we've seen over and over that there is often a, a lack of common understanding of history and that results in a lack of shared values and, um, and understanding of the path forward. And... Um, so we, we knew that there had never been a comprehensive documentary about Richmond's history 
and that a lot of people consume history through documentary, and that that's one thing that it can do well, that it can uh, consolidate and visualize a lot of history. And um, we were also very fortunate to know a lot of people in Richmond who have been doing this kind of work, this, this public history work, engaging students, engaging people of all ages um, in Richmond's history. And uh, we were fortunate to, to have intersected with everyone on stage at one point or another um, in the past seven years that we've lived in Richmond and knew how much expertise and just amazing perspectives they could offer and so we thought if we could harness that and offer it as something that could help bring people to a more common understanding, that that would be a worthwhile thing to do in this moment. Mm. Thank you for doing so. I want to shift right. now and, oh, please, Lauren. May I, of course. before we move forward, I want to thank both Hannah and Lance so much because one of the opening scenes, one of the words that I heard that resonated with me was Reverend Lisette Cross saying walk together. And when you think about movements such as the civil rights movement and moments of great emotion, social unrest, upheaval, whatever, you might wonder where is the church? You had the voice of the church there. And it was the church of this 21st century, that of a black, female LGBTQ minister, mm. which we have not heard in the past in moments such as this. And so it really helped open up space to have that as part of the opening. Thank you so much. Mm. Thank you. Yeah. Dr. Lee, I think you're, the spirit in which you responded there is exactly the spirit in which I hope this panel might progress. So as I ask questions, uh, I hope that uh, you might continue the dialogue with one another based on what might be shared. Uh, I was assured that uh, ahead of time that um, I wouldn't uh, need to, uh, to, cut, to cut them uh, off too much. Uh, uh, also assured that there would be a healthy answer. So let me uh, continue in this, in this theme. And, and that to say um, to, to other panelists here, what would you draw our attention to as viewers within the film to more fully understand the issues at stake? Or perhaps if I might phrase that question slightly differently, is there a particular moment or an image or perhaps a line, uh, perhaps like Dr. Lee has already shared, that, that you would like to highlight for us uh, to, 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 to grab the depth of what the movie might reflect? <laughs> well, I mean, I think that there are a number of things. What I appreciate about this particular film, and, and there have been now, I think, at least three or four films that have been made about the monuments coming down. And um, what I appreciate about this one is a dive into the history and the different voices and the different sectors of community that uh, brought this moment to bear. And I think that there is a, I, I think it is foolhardy to think that only one segment in one moment in time are responsible for something, even if they physically do it. 
Um, and what I mean by that is, you know, the, as the film pointed out, you know, you had council people back in the 70s who were saying, we had some real, some real stuff going on. Yeah, we wanted them down, but we were trying to do X, Y, and Z for the community and wanted to begin tackling those issues. Or you had you know, folks on the ground in the summer of 20 talking about the meaning of this. People who lived in the neighborhood who talked about the shadow on their neighborhood and the idea about you know, all, all of the reasons, all the, whether it was economic or social or political or all that, I, I, that's, it's the combination of those things that um, I think was really powerful. Um, and I've seen, uh, I've seen three of the four films that have been made about the summer of 2020. And you know, there's one that is, that is all of them are very good. Um, they're just, I think that's the beautiful thing about a subject is that you have the opportunity to view them um, through the vision and the eyes of the filmmaker. Each filmmaker is gonna bring that remarkable piece of story. And so, um, you know, the best analogy that I could give is how many cop movies can you see, right? Each one is gonna have a different vision, um, different talent that's gonna come to bear. This film tried to put all of these pieces, this history, this current moment, this current environment, that they, it tried to bring all of that together in, in 90 minutes or less. Right, <laughs> um, and so that's you know that's my takeaway with it. So I can't say that there's a particular moment. Um, there's a you know certainly a moment that was really emotional to me. A couple that were really emotional to me. Um, one was uh, listening to Agena Rogers talk about her ancestor, um, and that was I mean she got choked up. Right, that that always hits me. Um, and then there's the moment where, um, uh, when uh, Stewart, I think the Stewart came down. No, when Jeff Davis, when yeah. Jeff Davis got pulled yeah. down, that was just really startling um, and powerful, and just like a moment that I, I uh, when it was happening, I, I was awestruck, and when I saw it in the film and heard the voices in the film that were there that day. Um, it was just powerful, mm. really important moments. Um, I think uh, when we talk about the monuments, um, a lot of the narrative surrounds them is about them being symbolic and somewhat abstract um, to the fight for social justice. And it always comes back to John Mitchell for me, and I'm just, the reportage of him writing. The, this glorification fosters in the Republic the spirit of rebellion and will ultimately result in the handing down to generations unborn a legacy of treason and blood. Yeah. This is our life today. We are living this. There is no past. I mean, Faulkner said it, I guess lots of other people said it, but we are living the legacy of those monuments right now. I mean, and, and our democracy is precarious as a result of that. So it's, it's not abstract at all. And uh, the way you all connected the dots in that way, I think, um, was, was brilliant because um, this, is, this is a continuum. It's not about some disjointed event that happened a century and 
30 years ago. We're, this is all part of a continuum of how this ideology is cancerous and is eating away literally at what this nation professes to be. Um, yeah, of course, my favorite part of the documentary are all the parts I'm in. <laughs> <laughs> you, you earned that, Julian. You were, he was interviewed on the hottest day of the summer last year. So. Really, I'm, I'm kidding. Um, I like the end because it leaves you with more questions than answers. Right? We like, I think sometimes we like to sew up stories, especially when you're telling a narrative arc of something, that, that there's a happy ending. And um, I think what it demonstrates is that there's a more complex phase moving forward um, of coming to terms with all the things that Mike just delineated. I, I will say this. Please. When I watched the film the first time, I guess it was over the summer, it evoked much different emotion than when I watched it again today as a refresher. When I watched it over the summer, I, it felt, I felt euphoric. It was celebratory. I watch it today and it's a cautionary tale. Could you continue on that theme, Michael Paul, and, and, and maybe say more about, yeah. I'm gonna talk politics. <laughs> what happened last week for me made it a cautionary tale. It shows us how um, illusory change can be, how impermanent it can be or appear, and how tenuous it is and how you have to fight every day of your life yeah. to sustain change. Yeah. We, we, were, Thank you. we were on the phone the other day. Mike had called me before the election and he was, he was scared. <laughs> and we were talking and, I, and I, we came up, you know, we came to this, we always talk for a lot longer than we should. And we were talking about this pendulum. Like, you know, I think, I think it was King who said the moral arc of the universe bends towards justice, right? And I think American history belies that story. I think what we see is when moments of um, permissiveness are always usually followed up by moments of deep restriction. And the same could be said for Reconstruction, women's suffrage, the civil rights movement, and perhaps even now. Um, that, is anybody shocked, by the way, that, that there was backlash? Um, to this move, it's amazing, I think. And that's, I think, we're back to the end of the dock. I think that's really just like, it, these types of movements need to be followed up with institutional and political will. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a victory, no doubt, right, that those monuments are no longer on Monument Avenue. But it is the beginning of a long and more complex phase in trying to come to terms with the story that Mike just laid down. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more with that. We, we, we did a screening at the Virginia Film Festival a couple of weeks ago, 10 days ago, and somebody asked what was the most kind of difficult thing about the film for us. And what I said, having just sat there in the audience and watched it for the first time in maybe four months, is that I was feeling a lot of what the two of you are, are talking about. I was feeling this, the, you know, things that I knew but I, I think experiencing the film again and experiencing the, this, this argument offered in the film that like, look, we can do all these things. We can seize this moment and, and build the world that we want. And that world felt so very far away as I sat there and watched it. It, it felt so much less achievable in the short term than it did when we wrapped the edit of the film in what, January or February of this year. It, it felt perilously far away. And that was before the election. <laughs> mm. 
right? And so especially now, I mean, one of the, and I'll just say briefly on this, but I think the education angle of this could not be more important, particularly given all the, the themes of, of this uh, election for governor that we just went through. One of the first things we did in setting about to make this film while we were still shooting it was reach out to Rodney Robinson, whom many of you will know is former National Teacher of the Year, 20-year veteran of Richmond Public Schools, and we asked him if he would want to partner with us to write a curriculum for this film, because we, we, we figured we'd start with him because he was our first choice, and if he said yes, then we could, we could build something that would be strong and would, would find a way to you know, teach this in Richmond Public Schools and across Virginia. And he did write that curriculum, and it's quite strong, and RPS is embracing it, and the Virginia Department of Education is interested in doing stuff with it. Well, now, how much of that is thrown into question? Right. You know, right. uh, and, and, th and this is important. You know, what for so many of us, most of us don't go on to be historians or even make films about history or major in history. Right? History as a major is 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 a very small percentage of, of American college students these days. For most of us, the last time that we have any sort of formal history instruction could be seventh, eighth, ninth, tenth grade, and you learn about something then. And then later, you're a, you're a voter, you're a parent, you're a coworker, you're a friend, you're an influencer in your own ways. And what was accomplished or what was missed in your classroom in the eighth grade could have everything to do with your worldview at that later point. So that's either inspiring or terrifying. And, and it's those sorts of realities that, that I think are, are, the, are heightened right now as we think about the, the, the moment that, that was there in the film that, that maybe isn't so much right now. Thank you. These last uh, reflections uh, have kind of anticipated the next question. Uh, and, and that is, wh where, where does the story uh, of the monuments and all they represent for Richmond, Virginia and beyond, where, where, where do you see it going? Some of you have already begun to respond to that. I wonder if others might want to pick up on that theme of, of where does the story uh, continue? Uh, after we've been left off uh, at the end of the film. I just, you know, things done, I've said this all the time, by the way, this is a broken record, things done on purpose can only be undone purposefully, right? I think the beauty of the story is the intentionality of, right, of black serfdom after the demise of slavery, and that lasts well into the 20th century, perhaps even into the 21st century. And I think there's this belief in the United States that the further we got away from our tortured racial history, that racism would just disappear into the atmosphere. And all this stuff happening right now belies that belief. I, I, I truly believe people thought it would just go away. Um, but it keeps coming back up in large part because I don't think we've dealt with the intentionality of, this, this story is only nominally, in my opinion, about the monuments. Um, I mean, don't get me wrong, they're central to the narrative. Um, but this could be a story about any city in the United States with or without Confederate iconography, right? Um, and about how, just how intense, you think of Jim Crow in the most sometimes benign ways, right? Lunch counters and segregated diners. It's much more pernicious than that. Um, and I think w these, this is the first step in recognizing a history that was purposefully untold, one. And I think you can't have reconciliation without recognition, two. And, this is the type of stuff I think that's hard to look away from. Once you see it, it cannot be unseen. You have a decision to make about what you're gonna do about the perpetuation of these old world ideas in a modern era and how people just won't let them go. Um, and the, the fictitious ways that they defend. I mean, Lance, you're just like, many of those books weren't faced out of the curriculum in, in Virginia history. 
until the 1980s and 1990s. There are generations of people walking around here who literally do not know that, that the United Daughters of the Confederacy, Sons of Confederate Veterans, were a powerful lobby and they were able to get Jim Crow legislatures to, to, to literally infect these history textbooks with their ideas for no other reason, right, um, than the residual guilt left around from what happened as a result of the Civil War. We've got to deal with this. So I think in one way, just telling the story in and of itself is a powerful tool and getting people to activate and come to terms with the perpetual, I mean, we'd leapfrog the 20th, we'd like talk about, well, what's wrong with American race and, and, and the African-American community, 21st century, we'd leapfrog the 20th century to get back to slavery, right? And I'm not saying slavery doesn't matter, but you gotta look very deeply into the 20th century. Those monuments were built in the 20th century. And I think this does a really good job of illustrating, like, just how intentional um, and how recent and how present and how un undone this history is with us, right? I wonder, Hannah or Christy or Laurenette, uh, any reflections from you on how you help us process uh, where the story goes from here? I can see opportunity to look at ourselves in a much more uh, reflective and introspective way to see, to ask what not only what part have I played in perpetuating this, mm. these injustices, but also what can I do to help move people out of this, these unjust ways? And oftentimes it's such a burden on those of us who have been oppressed by this, but I think we have come to a point where we're seeing people working together more collaboratively. Um, and so the, the phrase walk together children, which is something that we heard in the civil rights movement. And we're, even through this documentary, there's the mention of people walking together with the boycott of the streetcars that collective action of moving people out of oppression to something better is where I'm finding hope. And I'm hoping that that's something that can be sustained, especially because we're having more people in, engaged in this, this struggle and that that crosses all lines. Uh, I think that's critically important. But at the same time, I also recognize that those who are in places of power and who have influence recognize this and are going to push back equally hard. So as they said in the Bible, we must gird our loins. <laughs> um, right now, I'm kind of, uh, I'll be honest, I'm, I'm in a, I'm genuine, genuinely a very optimistic person because I work in history every day, public history every day in museum space. Um, and, I, and I know that aside from that early education, 
a lot of other ways that people get their history is when they go to a historic site when they're on vacation and they want to have some kind of experience and so forth and so on. And what, since this latest, um, what I can only refer to as latest made up outrage around critical race theory which does not exist in K through 12, hasn't existed in K through 12, and what it has become is actually a code, a reappropriation and code for, we don't want white people to feel bad about the past because we're not responsible for it, which is woefully wrong. Hmm. You, there is benefit um, that has been derived regardless of your economic impact or your economic station, rather, whiteness, um, in America anyway, does have a certain value, a valuation. Now, I know that there are those, and, and, and here's the challenge for, for me, um, working in the museum space, is that just in the, just in the past six months or so, the number of school teachers who are terrified that the few that have actually been able to come on field trips, yeah. right? The first question off the bus, please tell me y'all don't do CRT or I have to put yeah. my kids back on the bus. Yeah. This is what I'm dealing with. And so, you, the teacher asked as they get off the bus, we've had teachers ask us point blank, please tell me you don't do CRT. Otherwise, they have to put the kids back on the bus because of this faux outrage around this idea um, that talking about um, whether social or ethnic conflict of our past, which is very real. Now, I'm currently at the Jamestown Yorktown Foundation, which tells the story of the arrival of the English into indigenous land and then the arrival of Africans in 1619. There is conflict, <laughs> right? There are conflicts among these people. There are power imbalances. There are uh, economic forces. There's a whole lot that's going on here other than let's feed the English people because they didn't, weren't smart enough to plant some food <laughs> and chose to put their settlement in the middle of a swamp, <laughs> right? But that's not the story that you, you were taught. So the narrative of the place that I deal with is they want to talk about Pocahontas saving John Smith and then running off and marrying him, which she never did. She didn't marry him. And, there, you know, and so the indigenous story of actually what happened with John Smith was, again, this is a power play. They knew he was powerful and the tribes did kidnap him. And they kidnapped him for the return of indigenous boys who had been taken. So these are, these are the stories that are not a part of America's narrative, right? We, and so here, here we are, these teachers are, who have been bringing, you know, over 200,000 kids a year come to Jamestown, right? From around the country, majority of Virginia, fourth grade Virginia kids, third and fourth grade, y'all probably remember where you had to make the, the popsicle stick fort, <laughs> right? This is the trip. And, and it is, and, and the teachers are afraid. And then conversely, we have some of the private schools that come 
that were, and these are private schools who were established in the 1950s here in Virginia with the sole purpose of massive resistance, where monies from public schools, from public funds, were put to establish these private schools so that white kids wouldn't have to be in integrated school systems. And so the legacies of those schools and those kids come to our site, and it is a demand. It isn't a question. During the course of our tour, we do not expect to hear. And it's, I mean, and this is, like I said, in the last six months. So here's the thing that I find extraordinary in, in as I'm watching this, both from, from where I sit in the museum world, but also where I sit as a resident of the Richmond region and a, and a Virginian for more years than I will tell you. Uh, might as well call me a native. Um, the thing that, that I find most startling in this moment is that as much as the, it's, it's almost like progressives when we get legislative changes like, you know, restoration of rights for felons who've, who've met all of their obligations or um, to allow localities, which was one of the things that the Monument Avenue Commission recommended to allow localities the control of what happens to monuments in their communities. Communities put them up, communities should decide what happened to them, right? So all of these things that happened um, in, in uh, 19 through, well, 18 through, uh, 2018 through 2020 and into 21, it's like progressive folk then start fighting over stuff. And, you know, and, and then all of a sudden, they the fracture and, and in that fracture, I can tell you, conservatism will not go out without a fight. And, and, and again, I'm, I'm being, I want to be really careful here because we recognize that there are certain, um, I recognize that there are certain things that are part of the conservative agenda that I really agree with, but there is a difference between a conservative agenda and a retention of white supremacy. And, it, and you can color and flower it any way you want. And I, and, I, and, I, and I think that as we think about what's gonna happen next, it's really gonna be a, a question of who has the greater political will. Because I can tell you, the, I mean, to a certain degree, um, we've, you know, when you look at polls around certain issues, the majority of Americans favor a fairly progressive agenda. What they're afraid of, I think, is what moving out of the status quo can look like. So for example, the residents of Monument Avenue, yes, we know they're problematic, but we have a historic district in landmark status, and how's that gonna affect our pocketbooks, and how's it, and it, and it and at few points, except this past summer, did anybody really stop and say, what does it do? You, you know, poor woman is worried about her son reading, you know, having nightmares because he read Beloved, for God's sake. <laughs> but nobody ever, ever stopped and said, what is happening to that black child that walks in a school that the teacher automatically assumes their blackness means crime? Or that the stories that they're learning in school and their historical training or what have you really um, dismisses um, the role that people of color have played in the formation of America, not just as victims, but as people who have advanced the agenda and making America fight for the promise of her ideals. 
right? I mean, of, of, of forcing, forcing this, the ideals that were set forth by the founders to make them practice. Those are people of color, those are women, those are the allies that pull those together. And so, so that's to me the definition of progressivism is what are we doing to advance the ideals and moving towards those ideals? That's progressivism to me. Um, where others are like, how do we hold on to status quo? And the desire for status quo, because that's what you know and that's where you're comfortable and that's where you feel like you have your power or your whatever, is the part that raises its head and is fierce and it is intentional and it is unrelenting. And, I, and I, so I, I watch that pendulum that you talked about. Um, and I don't, and I don't, and pendulum suggests that it's sort of a natural order. It's not. No, it's not. One it's one. not. It's 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 not a natural kind of swing back and forth, and we'll all be fine because we'll balance out in the middle. That's not what it is when you're talking about human and civil rights and dignity for everyone. That's that is not a thing that should even be negotiable, right? I mean, at the end of the day, everyone should. The, if, if that's what we believe, right? If that's what we truly say we espouse, then why is it so hard to consider that? But, but it belies, I mean, it even belies biography, right? The narrative of not dealing with, like, when, when, if somebody wants you to believe in their story, the first thing they want, they want to centralize is struggle, right? Look what I had to endure to be the person that I am, right? It's, it's bananas. And think, it's like, at one point in the like, 18th century, 45% of Virginia's population were black Africans. Yep. That's not a footnote. Yes. Right? And I mean, really, and we need, we've got to centralize these kind of mic drops that, that people don't understand. Like, in telling this story, isn't it about an agenda? It's about historical reality. It's about historical truth. Right? It's, and it's, a, it's amazing to me, right? You're right. I think the pendulum's being pushed. Um, it's being manufactured by people who recognize, I think the real problem is that people feel like coming to terms with this history, something might have to be done about it. Bingo, right. bingo, right. absolutely, right. absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And, and, and I will tell you this though, um, there's a phenomena happening around the world that you may or may not be aware of um, uh, with this idea of addressing historic wrongs and, and things of that sort. And it, it, it's subtle, but it's important. And that is the return of cultural artifact and legacy to countries that were looted. The British Museum. The, the British Museum has done there. it. The Belgium. <laughs> British Museum is actually being resistant because the British Museum argument, what I just saw the guy no, talking no, about really. that. Oh my God. He's like, well, I mean, we acquired them <laughs> in the expansion of the empire. Right. And it's like, well, and it's the story of, you know, the, the British and. It's like, dude, you stole them. They, I mean, they, they raided and destroyed places literally and, and dug these things out, like the bronze, those beautiful, you know, the bronze plaques of the soldiers and things like that. Most of that stuff was looted in the 1890s and early 19, uh, 1900s. And so, but Nigeria is getting the Menin bronzes back from several nations. Germany has now signed on to do it. But here's the thing that's really interesting. We have legislation in the United States and around the world that made it um, critically important to return 
looted materials that the Nazis took, right? So loot, we had le world legislation to return looted material. That was the first one. And then the next thing that we got in the 90s was NAGPRA, the return of sacred and looted objects from indigenous burial grounds and things like that, even though that continues, right? But NAGPRA, you know, where museums have had to go into the collection, we have yet to have anything remotely like that out of all of the treasures that were taken out of Asia or out of Africa. And, and it's been an individual country basis. Egypt has been very successful at that, but Egypt's, it's interesting, out of, out of the whole of the continent, Egyptians, are, um, Egyptians and Arabs uh, are considered white. And they're the only nations that have been able, of those nations, that have been able to successfully navigate and negotiate the ownership of their cultural properties. The rest of the continent has not been able to do that. So what's happening now with the return of these materials, and this is, again, this is important to understand that this sort of global dynamic of coming to grips and coming to a reckoning so that we can correct, right? So we can correct the harms and we can move forward both as nation states but also as a global community um, and I think that that's important. This is maybe way off track from what we're talking about. Me, film. It, but it, believe it or not, it is actually, these are actually connected pieces, right? I mean, what we have valued as cultural, important cultural landmarks in the United States, um, and certainly here in Richmond, has all been around the Confederacy, right? I mean, it's, it's extraordinary that a, a city literally staked its economic and, and social future on four years, despite an extraordinary history um, before that. Yeah. Actually, I think there is a real connection, by the way. It's that many English and Enlightenment philosophers actually made pretty convincing arguments, well, at least for the, to themselves, that Africa was a place without history or event, right? That there was no history there before them, in large part, because oral traditions didn't matter, right? It's just another form, and by the way, you see this in the lost cause, right? That we're doing these folks a favor by having them here, because um, they're better off here than they are back there. And it's all kind of interconnected. It's like, well, who gets to tell that story, right? And whose history matters? And, and how human they are as a result of that history. Just, just hearing Christy talk about a form of reparation for ex it. extraction of artifacts, what about the millions of people that were taken from Africa? What do you do about that? I mean, is, <laughs> what does that do to a continent? Mm -hmm. And how do we deal with that? Let me, uh, you asked me that question. Uh, let me, oh. I, I, I've got a question. Uh, thank you for these reflections. Let me uh, jump in and just uh, shift the conversation, maybe even, if it's possible, even a little bit more close to home. Uh, and that is, um, you know, here at the University of Richmond, we're, we're wrestling with our own institutional history. All of you have been a part of this, and all of you have been so helpful He's going there. to us at the University of Richmond. And, <laughs> Um, it would be, uh, as a good journalist would say, it would be my job to ask the right question. Uh, what advice do you give us? We're wrestling with names, we're wrestling with institutional histories that are very difficult. We, we're wrestling, we have a, a burying ground where there were enslaved persons who 
previous generations of leadership buried that. Now we're trying to figure out how to tell that story more fully, honor these legacies. What is the counsel that you all would have to us at the university as we try to process, process our own history and identity? How do you measure an institution's development by burying, pardon the pun, right, the history? Like, how do you respect the diversification of this school in the last 15 to 20 years if you don't recognize where it was, who it was established by, right? And right, that the, there's an inextricable link between the establishment of the University of Richmond, its movement to this area, tobacco money, right, enslavement. To me, that makes the story of now that much more enriching. It's like, look what this place was, right? And look what it's become. Or look what it's striving to be. Um, I don't think, it's like, how do you measure progress otherwise without being realistic about where we've been? It's nothing short of remarkable. Don't get me wrong, we got a ways to go, right? And, uh, you know, I'm not trying to portray this as a triumph narrative because it's still a work in progress. But part of that progress is recognizing this is who we were. You come to terms with that. You deal with it. Um, and I think in telling that story, it gives the community, within and without, a deeper sense of who we are. It gives us an identity, right? Um, it gives us an identity that, um, is, it, that is linked to a tortured history and people's commitment to resolving that history, right? Um, um, I'm not involved in, in the process here at UR, but um, I think process is so important. How are you going to engage with the stakeholders? How are you going to engage with young people who are going to um, enter this institution and graduate from it and um, have so much uh, perspective to offer? And I think actually looking at monuments and looking at an example in the film could be helpful here in that um, Gina Rogers points out how inclusive the process was of deciding what the Maggie Walker statue would look like. Mm. Um, there were community meetings to decide what age of Maggie Walker do we want to present? What should it look like? Should it be abstract or figurative? Um, it was an extremely uh, community-oriented process. Contrast that with the Confederate monuments mm. that were decided, you know, the, the design and the funding was all generated from this group of white elites. Um, there was no community <laughs> engagement process, um, and certainly some people were completely shut out from that. So I think thinking about how do we actually make sure that the voice, all voices are heard. Thank you. I think yeah. there's a difference between, uh, well, let me, let me just offer this little piece of advice because I'm, I'm still, I mean, I remember what it was like uh, when I first went off to college many years ago um, to a PWI, as we call it, predominantly white institution, and how difficult that was as a student of color um, for so many reasons, um, you were it, the, the the microaggressions and the outright racism that's that we faced. And for me, that was you know forty years ago almost um, was extraordinary. And recently, I've listened to students here say, tell similar stories, which was shocking to me. But I did ask them. I said, well. Do you hear this from your other classmates that are at other PWIs? 
And the response was, well, kind of, yeah, we all kind of deal with it. They're all dealing with campus environments where, you know, the tradition of naming buildings after people that are venerated in the past and, and, and this idea of sort of tradition is so fixed that, it's, that buildings can't change and names can't change unless money's involved. And then the money that's involved can sometimes be tainted you know, it depends. And so all of these things I think are very real, but as one student said, for me the big thing is I need to know where I'm gonna sleep, where I need to go to class, and where I'm gonna eat. And since that is the space that I'm moving in, I'd like to be able to know that those spaces are really welcoming from their name to the way you can get into them and everything else. Um, but here's the thing, just changing the name on the building isn't enough unless there's active work, right, of the university community to resolve the issues that, um, that impact your students. And not just your student, you know, not just students of color, because here's the thing, there are some schools, like when I, years ago I went and did a, an assessment at, uh, University of Mississippi. Why? Because <laughs> they asked us to come and assess what they could do with Confederate Road and uh, I mean, it, oh my God. So that's like the extreme side of things. But here's the thing, University of Mississippi is 30% black. Yeah. And yet the the things that hap are happening, not happened, the things that continue to happen on that campus are, again, you would think you were in 1950s for some of it. And I don't perceive that to be the issue here at, at University of Richmond, because there has been a, a, a steady uh, um, attempt to diversify the student body, both international students, students of color, et cetera, to open the doors and to provide opportunities for students who may be first gen and, and you know, make it affordable and all those kind of things that are really intentional action. But you also have the, the, the legacy component that you've got to be able to address, it seems to me, um, and it doesn't mean you're gonna forget the past or put the past in a corner or any of that. What it means is you're actually addressing the legacies that bring you to this remarkable place where the university is and, and, and committing as a university community to being the kind of space where everybody feels emotionally safe 75% of the time, hmm. right? I'm not gonna say 100%. 75% of the time that you're not gonna be afraid that somebody is going to question why you're there by intellect or, you know, or campus police isn't gonna stop you because you happen to be walking with three of your black friends back from the basketball game or from Camp Hall after hearing a lecture and they want you to show student ID to prove that you belong. I mean, those are the, t the tiny kind of things that happen that impact the experience. Or the young woman who reports being assaulted and, and has to go jump through hoops to even get any justice to that problem. I mean, all of this is, you know, deal with the legacies, choose a future together, and commit to that. 
is the hardest, hardest thing to do. Because you, know, you are a university community, so there are a variety of, um, of intellectual and social and process-driven things that guide you. Um, but there has to be a shared value here, a shared sense of what you want this place to be. And I think some of that is really good, but once you commit to it, stick to it and make it the thing. And if people who are legacies decide that they wanna come and they don't fit in or don't think that value, then maybe they don't need to be there. Worst thing you can have is your students to feel like, as, it, as was said recently, that they've been catfished. I'm less optimistic. Okay. I'm, I'm not I mean, I, it, it, you guys get into this, by the way, when you start talking about residential patterns in the documentary and why they matter, right? right, right. You got kids that are coming here from racially homogenous communities because of historical legacy, right, of residential segregation. Manufactured, I might add. Many professors, right, were raising them, and many people that work in the services of the institution go back to them when they clock out. And then we talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion, but that's not how people live out apart from here. And then we're bringing in all these lofty ideas. They, they might as well be otherworldly, um, as righteous as they are and as right as they are. That's just not how we live. And then we, the people come into these spaces where not being realistic about like the challenges. Uh, and you're, I do, I think you're right. There needs to be intentional language about what is taking place before people get here so they know what they're walking into given where they're from. And we're not talking about that stuff. It's like, yeah, they're all great ideas. Um, there's no doubt about that. But in many ways, those ideas belie the way that we live with one another. Even neighborhoods nowadays in Richmond that are diverse are transitionally diverse as white folks move in and black people move away. Um, and we've seen this repeatedly throughout history. And I think this is shaping and shading the nature of the, these type of conversations around memory because people are bringing their baggage to bear wherever they're from. You can pretty much guarantee how someone thinks politically based on their zip code, right? And, and of course that's changing, but I think that is having an influence on the nature in which these conversations develop or do not develop on these campuses around these very controversial issues, around historical memory, naming, and, and the like. I think there are other things at play. I don't know I mean, how to deal with that. I mean, I, let me jump, jump in or else we're not going to be able to hear. Thank you for all these reflections. We also want to hear a couple of questions uh, for the audience, uh, and we're right up on time of that. So uh, Madison and uh, Ben uh, that Dean Peart introduced earlier. Madison and Ben, if you all would uh, come forward, and as you all are coming forward, this is the rapid fire round. Uh, you know, because uh, if they only ask one question and everybody responds, there's only going to be one question. So uh, we'll try to go through uh, several, uh, or a handful anyway, uh, from Madison uh, and Ben. Well, before they start, let me add, I really think it's important that prospective students understand that we are uncovering our history and we're engaging with it, and that we introduce this history at that very beginning entry point, follow up with the first year seminar, and use the documentary to uh, help acclimate them to where they are. They probably, for those who come from other places, only know the Richmond that, uh, my friends, that the Richmond Tourism um, Council might put out. Um, and and I, I work with them as a consultant, but I really think it's important to help them understand in this intellectual environment 
that we're here not only to guide them through this phase in their life, but to help them understand their own history and the history of where they are. The documentary can help do that. Thank you. Hi everyone, I'm Madison and I'm a junior from South Chesterfield, Virginia. And I'm Ben, I am a junior from New York. And we really appreciate you all sending your questions and so we'll go ahead and jump right in. Um, the first question, what aspects of this movement are unique to Richmond considering the city's history, culture, demographics, ETC, compared to other cities in the South? It was the capital of the Confederacy? <laughs> I guess that's the short answer. You said this is- Rapid fire, that's pretty good. Dropping the mic. Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah, and this is where the monuments, the, the first big one was laid in 1890. But, but as Julian nodded to earlier, there's also a lot of parallels, and I think one reason we thought the film would resonate in other cities is because there are these same, some similar patterns in terms of the residential segregation. For example, a lot of cities can see themselves in Richmond's history. And I think also see themselves regarding disfranchisement and the current voting patterns as well. Um, another question is, do members of the panel have any specific suggestions regarding the future utilization of the spaces formerly occupied? By the monuments? Yeah. I think that future utilization needs to be powerfully defined by the people of Richmond, the people who are most proximate to, to the history that those monuments long obscured. And, and I think the, also, the, the perspective also needs to be pulled back and we think about the public history of Richmond beyond Monument Avenue and specifically looking at Shaka Bottom. Should we consider ourselves lifelong soldiers fighting in an endless war for justice and equality? Are we obligated to fight the fight? And if so, how can we deal with feelings of burnout and hopelessness, especially as young people driven to combat any injustice they see? How can we take care of ourselves in a relentless pursuit for justice? Be like a flock of geese. <laughs> I kid you not. Geese, when they fly, there's the lead. And then the, the more they're on that journey, one will pull back and another one takes their place. And they just keep rotating until they get to their destination. You have to self-care. Um, and, and the thing is, most social movements are started by young people because they got all that energy but you will burn yourself out if you don't learn how to be geese. I would say too, think about what people actually had to endure historically um, and draw energy from them. Um, that, you know, one generation's revolutionaries, another generation's obstructionists, but you gotta respect previous struggles and recognize um, that if they could muster up the will, so can you. Uh -huh. I'd also say that you all are better equipped to have a revolution than any generation before you. Can you imagine if MLK had had the internet? <laughs> and um, I'm not gonna tell you about the movie idea I was discussing with Julian here, but you all don't have a choice. It's up to you to save the planet. So you got to engage this fight. That's, that's, that's the movement, I think, of your time. I mean, you, we have leveraged your future and I don't think you can afford to sit this one out. Yeah. 
Yeah, and in order to do that, you've got to take care of yourself. Um, my students know I get into that maternal role. Um, you have to make sure that you get enough sleep. And I know in the... I don't. I don't. But it pays off in the long run. You've got to eat well. You've got to do something to relax and not just get so caught up in the struggle that your life becomes a struggle. That's critically important. I think history shows us too that agents of change take a lot of different forms and that could be a protester on the streets, that could be a journalist, that could be a public historian, that could be a parent. So finding your role and, and your strengths and leaning into that. Very quickly, I think it's also critically you recognize context. The young people nowadays are living in effectively the most over-documented right, period in human history. There's more information coming from different places. Um, the balls that people have to juggle now um, are just entirely different than what previous generations. So recognize what's going on around you, um, how you can tune in and tune out from that. And, but most effectively, you have to be able to, to, to weed out the dissonance. I think he just told you to subscribe to newspapers. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Another question asks, do you agree with Condoleezza Rice's argument against CRT? She argues that black children will actually be hurt because they will internalize a victim mentality or some other such nonsense. Why is she wrong? Because, because people made it through. I'm not even gonna answer this. I'm gonna answer it. Okay, so, you know, one of the things that we understand when you're studying injustice and things of that sort is that white supremacy cannot thrive unless it has people of color that it can position to help reinforce it. Um, I think that her argument is ill-informed from an exceptionally brilliant woman, which is what makes it so much a political statement than a thoughtful one. Grew up in Birmingham, Alabama. Alabama right? <laughs> uh, I heard a bombing or two. So, I mean, you know, it's, it's, that's, that's one of the, the it, it was the most insane thing I'd ever read when I saw that, that she said that. Because that's not what CRT is. I mean, my God, that is not what it is. It isn't about making people feel bad. It's about looking at structures and systems of inequality that have been established in legal terms that impact people of color. And they have six pillars. Read about them, but we don't study that in elementary school, K through 12. Most college students don't study it. It is about looking at systems. And if you think that those systems don't exist in our legal society, I'll just push you back to the 80s when I was coming of age and you could buy a gram of powder cocaine and if you got caught with a gram of powder cocaine for $100, you might pay a $50 fine. If you got caught with a 25 or even $100 worth of rock cocaine, which comes from powder cocaine, which comes from powder cocaine refined, you were facing anywhere from 5 to 30 years in prison. That is structural and you know why? Because rock cocaine was specifically developed to push in the inner cities because they were having so much trouble moving the powder. So that is a structural thing that significantly impacted and it was based on race. 
And I highly also recommend, go back and read Ehrlichman's testimony about what Nixon did regarding and how they introduced this false war on drugs. Um, because that is an extraordinary confession from Ehrlichman about what they did and why they were doing it that has now affected two generations of black households because of a very specific decision, political decision. Go back and take a look at it. If you don't know what I'm talking about, figure it out. Go uh, get it. Internet's a lovely place. Real, real quick, CRT, I'm 46 years old, by the way. CRT was developed when I was born. It comes out of critical legal. This is from Harvard legal theory, by the way. I mean, extraordinarily complex. I've never seen it in a high school curriculum. Um, it, it's created by a man named Derek Bell uh, yep. to try to explain why civil rights laws were ineffective. And it was because they were saturated or surrounded by structural racism that impinged upon their ability to be effective. That's all it is. It's, it, it, I don't, but it's a buzzword, it's a straw man, and Condoleezza Rice has got it all mucked up, and that's, that's long. But she, she's out of the Hoover Institution. Why would we believe a word she says? And this is, the right has think tanks euphemistically named, <laughs> that, 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 that concoct all this racist, classist nonsense to fool the masses. And, and they've been doing it for decades. I don't think there's any real equivalent on, on the left that the right does this. But yeah, why did, she has no credibility. She's in the Hoover Institution. Of course she's going to say that. <laughs> Thank you all. Um, the next question is, how can white people like my... Mm, how can white people educate themselves better on the black history we didn't receive in schools? You're watching this, you're here. <laughs> you're here. Uh, I don't know. Read. Go to a museum. Uh, take initiative. Watch Netflix. Exactly. <laughs> I meant what I said when I was talking about over-documentation. There's no excuse. Uh, these days for, for the lack of access to information. Um, there were people, by the way, of generations that had to struggle for this history to be even told. Right, and imagine that. Um, there were people, African-Americans, generations of African-Americans, 20th century, throughout the South, um, that had to struggle to come to terms with this history. Maybe that's what's so frightening. Isn't it? And, that, 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 this is out there. All this information right. is out there. Right. The truth is out there. Yeah. Right. Been out there. This is not, this is not, and that's the thing, right? I mean, so, so again, in my world of the museum world, this idea that um, all of this is revisionist history, right? I hear that word a lot. Oh, it's just revisionist history. History is always revising as we get new information and new data sets and, and somebody has some incredible thing that comes out of their attic that's been there for the family attic for 200 years and you're bringing all of those data together. But more important, it's about the questions that generations ask. So when a new generation is asking a question of the past, the resources are there. I, you know, I started at Colonial Williamsburg, my career, you know, when I was 18, and what was really interesting is I had lived in Williamsburg all my life. I didn't, when I started working there for a special program at that point, was the first time I ever heard that the capital of the wealthiest, largest of the 13 colonies, which was Williamsburg, on the eve of the revolution, was 52% black. I had never heard that growing up in that town. Right? I never heard that growing up in Williamsburg. And so 
And then once I learned that, and Williamsburg was very intentional to train us and give us the, I mean, we had names and what they did and what occupations and family members and connections and what owners did to them and didn't do to them. And I mean, it was an extraordinary thing, but that's not the Williamsburg that America fell in love with. That every other face you would have seen on the street in colonial capital would have been a face like mine, right? And so the history has always been there. It's, it's a question of America's love affair with nostalgia versus history. I mean, I would say mythology. I right. Mean, it seems like we're replacing the mythology with real history. Yeah. It's like the, even, there it is. Like, even your, Christy, your comment about revisionist history being like loaded. Like, right. let's think about it like this. Like, Let's, th- let's talk about like, what it means if we're not talking about race, right? Imagine like, what people thought about the plague r- before germ theory, right? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Right. That, r- really, how, how would they have written the history before they, before they knew about microbes and viruses? Uh, they probably would have, bl- like they did, blamed it on Jewish people or scapegoated someone or thought it was Satan, right? And then we find out that, di- that diseases are actually caused by things other than, right, miasma, Historians gotta go back and say, oh, we got it wrong. That's, that's, what they, that's what we mean when we're talking about revenge. There are things that happen in the world that, re- that force us to reimagine the past, and that will continue to happen over and over and over again, um, because that's the nature of how history is written. Mm-hmm. I, I think we lost the trail on the rapid fire. Uh, <laughs> uh, one, more, uh, one more rapid fire, and then we'll wrap up. So uh, last, last question. You got it. <laughs> last, last question. Thank you. How do you propose we move forward in a manner that honors truth, dignity, and dignity for all? In the words of Mr. Rogers, look for the helpers. Yeah. See, here's the thing. We, the, the people that we hold up as heroes oftentimes are not the ones who were doing the heavy lifting at the time. Right? They're, they're, so look for those people as we're telling these stories about our very conflicted, um, very imbalanced past. Um, there are voices and people throughout that, again, that are advancing sort of the, the ideal of, of human rights and human dignity and human respect, the very thing that you want. So you go back, if you ask that question when you go back through history and look for those people uh, you will find them in abundance, in abundance, but they are not always the majority. And there is a difference. I think Hannah and Lance have been helpers in having people to see really what those monuments were about and what they are about now and why this particular moment is so very significant. It's, it's like the changing of the guard. And what we do with it now is up to us. And so the documentary opens up that space for us to consider where we've been, where we are, and where we want to go. It's a helper. I would say we all have to, um, to stay engaged. You know, that the, we, 
wanted to complete this film very quickly and to document not only the, the protests that were happening last summer, but also all the perspectives that were being generated in that moment of energy. We thought that was important to, to document it and to get it out there because we worried that this feeling would, would pass. And um, we all have to remember that discomfort and that energy that we felt and keep harnessing it and, um, you know, we all have a role to play. So think about how you're going to harness your strengths and your connections to continue maybe feeling uncomfortable because that's what's going to be necessary to actually make change. Um, we, you were talking earlier about um, what should replace the monuments. And obviously the process needs to be as inclusive as possible. But when you think about why the monuments went up and what they stood for um, and how they embodied a, a segregated, oppressive social order, the monuments are kind of a template. So I'd say kind of a guidepost is we replace those monuments symbolically as a template that represents the exact opposite of that, something that's inclusive. Um, something that promotes equity, something that promotes justice, to serve as a template for us moving forward. Something that also promotes a story, right? I think that's what we forget about Confederate iconography, um, is it was a story. And the only way you deal with a story is to tell a counter narrative or another story. And I think if we don't follow this moment up with institutional and political will, it's a squandered opportunity to tell a story, I mean, there's no excuse now. The histories have been written. Um, we know better now. Uh, it, you can't claim ignorance on this. And I think you have to take initiative to recognize that in order to deal with, you know, I think if we'd have done something to, to come to terms with our tortured racial history, those monuments would have been a punchline, right? But the continuity of bigotry made them worse. So I think we have to tell another story. So hopefully future generations. Um, don't have to right, endure what people had to endure in the 20th century. And I think we're already beginning to see uh, the counter narrative or uh, an expanded narrative with the uh, unveiling and dedication of the monument on Browns Island, the Emancipation and Freedom Monument. It's telling the narrative that's never been told before. And it was decided not to place it on Monument Avenue because we, part the Martin Luther King Commission, wanted people to be able to interact with the monument and to really get a sense of what it was like to show people that side of history that we'd never learned in school. And so you'll see a man with whip marks on his back and the chains broken. You'll see the woman holding a baby in one arm and a document upheld in another uh, because that moment was so, so central to American history, but we've never really talked about it before. And to have that monument here in Richmond as the Confederate monuments came down, really says a statement about moving forward. At least in that moment it did. 
to, to move forward in truth and justice, I think we have to remain clear on the stakes. What is at stake here? Things can always get better, but things can always get worse. Right after the 2020 election, President Obama gave a speech. Many people were reeling from what had happened in the results of the 2020 election. And he said, you know, if you had to be, if you had to choose any time in history to be born, you'd have to choose now, right? Things are so much better in so many ways today on, and on almost every measure than they were 20 years ago, 30 years ago. But, he said, you never know when it's 1930 in Poland. We've got to stay aware of the stakes. We've got to realize that things can get better, but they can always get worse. And it's only by staying engaged and talking to one another, more, more of, of, of a we, of an us, than we may conceive in our lives right now. Only if we do that will there be truth, will there be justice. That's what we're trying to do here at the University of Richmond as we move through a very painful uh, history and looking at the ways that we can continue having dialogue and conversation about uh, this history and how we incorporate it into our curriculum and into our life, really. Well, th thank you. Thank you for being engaged with us tonight. Ma Madison and Ben, thank you for those wonderful questions that you shared from the audience. Just saying a couple more thank yous as we wrap up. Thank you to our friends here at the Modlin Center uh, for hosting us. Thank you to the faculty and staff of the Jepson School and the Center for Civic Engagement for convening uh, this. Two people in particular, uh, Shanna Best with Jepson School and uh, Alexandra Bynram uh, with the Center for Civic Engagement. Did a great deal of work on this. Uh, can we thank our panelists, thank them uh, for all this uh, time. Um, you heard a great conversation uh, up here. Uh, it, it, it was a real conversation, and uh, I think maybe all of us up here would not like nothing better if that conversation would continue. So here are your options. If you're in the room with us, uh, you can go directly out these doors in the back and take a left and just go straight, and there's a light reception there. Uh, maybe there's somebody that you don't know yet. Maybe you can say hello to somebody that you'd like to meet. Maybe there's a takeaway or a learning that you have that you'd like to share from today. If you're online, thanks so much for joining us. My guess is there's somebody with you now in your house, wherever you're visiting, and maybe you just ask one another, what's the takeaway for you? What's the learning that you have uh, tonight as we continue our conversation? Thank you again. Everybody have a wonderful evening.